From the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California, I'm Frank Ling, and you're listening to Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on this week's show, silicon implants, organic wheat, and viruses. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor Lee Dukatkin, who will talk about the evolution of altruism. In addition, you can find out what a photodiode is. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up here on the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty good. So are you the voice of anything this week? Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. Uh, that makes me Charles Lee, the voice of the other side. So you've, you've been there. Well, I've appeared across the void, and it, it's like any other place. Got a McDonald's, got a Holiday Inn. <laughs> Starbucks. Walmart. What do you want from the other side? I smell a rat. <laughs> But unfortunately, you know, not a lot of internet portals, so it's not a lot to do there. That's the message from the other side. Okay. So did you... Here's our animal fact of the week. I should have been asking you that. So, of course, we start off with the animal fact of the week. Where is the animal fact of the week? It turns out rats can live longer than camels without water. Uh, Where do they store it? I have no idea, but somehow they must be able to somehow uh, live off the essence. On absolute time scale, they can live more number of days without water. Oh, hmm. Low-maintenance pet there, huh? Yeah, maybe a good thing to bring along with you in the desert in case you run out of water. <laughs> you just squeeze it out of the rat. Here's a real story here. Okay. Do you like silicon implants? And the ones that I've gotten, I'm quite happy with. Oh, the ones that enhance your vision, right? Yes, that, those, yeah. <laughs> so that's what exactly uh, some uh, engineers at Stanford are working on, uh, a bionic eye using a silicon chip. It's going to be like a photodetector chip that then wire into the brain. Uh, every year, like millions of people suffer from macular degeneration or a disease called retinitis pigmentosa, in which the retinal cells just die off. Mm-hmm. And some of the um, artificial retinas now require either an external camera or a computer to process the information. So not exact convenient setup. Right. The chip that scientists at Stanford and the University of Pennsylvania have developed basically is a silicon chip. It's 3.5 by 3.3 millimeters, and it contains a series of uh, phototransistors that detect light. And it looks promising. Once it's implanted, patients can start to see uh, vague images, but at least it's a step right, right direction towards restoring uh, what they've lost. They were working on things like this way back even in the 70s with very large <laughs> CCD-type cameras. Right. This is now using the uh, photo detectors that they've developed right, thus far. Put everything right into the eye, extra computers. Very promising, and this was reported recently in The New Scientist. this will be good news for the environment. Yay! Yes. We all win. Can only hope. <laughs> so it looks like Congress is starting to listen a little more to different types of advice. The evangelical uh, environmentalists? <laughs> I'm not sure how evangelical or how zealous these particular environmentalists are, but it turns out that Congress is authorizing and having more hearings on the subject ever since it's become apparent that global warming might be a very real phenomenon. Senator Inhofe says it's the biggest hoax that's been perpetrated <laughs> on American people. So maybe I guess these hearings are essentially just to say that. But <laughs> So this is work that was done by the National Environmental Trust, and it's shown that basically Congress has held 233 hearings on global climate change since 1975. But although it's been authorizing more research, it's apparently not doing a lot to actually limit... Uh, greenhouse in, gas emissions. Yeah, right. It's listening, but it's not doing a whole lot is what mm-hmm. they're saying. 
And according to David Doniger of the National Resources Defense Council in Washington, D.C., he says hearings aren't doing anything. It's legislation that changes what's going on, mm-hmm. and that's what they really need. Step in the right direction, I guess. Capitol Hills probably moves a lot slower than academia, even. <laughs> <laughs> things are that bad, right? Well, <laughs> you would think money and congressional scandals might help move things along, but who knows? <laughs> Talk to your congressman today about it. <laughs> you know, I was a page boy once. <laughs> <laughs> So, Charles, do you like to shop at Whole Foods? Well, I like my food to be whole, yes. And organic, right? Yes, well, made out of organic materials is certainly good. (laughs) A little bit of carbon. Hydrogen, oxygen, (laughs) sometimes some sulfur and phosphorus. (laughs) No uranium. Good enough portions. I could deal with some uranium. So a new study has come out showing that organic wheat is actually not significantly healthier for you, nutrition-wise. So this is actually a big thing. I mean, what does it actually take to be classified as organic? I think it depends from state to state, but it probably depends on the level of insecticide or amount of chemical fertilizer that you use in your uh, farming. But in the study, they showed that 55 metabolites of them, only five were statistically different, and they didn't differ that much between organic and non-organic foods. Uh-huh. And in fact, if you plant if you plant wheat with the organic method, it's the yield is about 30% lower usually. Oh, okay. And so the only benefit would be that, you know, you don't have to deal with pesticides or chemical contaminants that are on the food. Basically, you're saying the nutrients are there, but the pesticide contaminants might still pose some kind of hazard. Right. So in terms of the benefits of organic food, this notion that it's nutritionally better is probably a bit overstated. I'm trying to clarify what's going on here in the food industry. Well, if you want to buy organic, go for it, I suppose. <laughs> Just realize that's what's going on. And this was in the recent edition of Journal of Agriculture and Food Chemistry. Have you ever been caught on camera? Just smiling, looking dorky. The researchers have been now able to capture uh, the viral mechanisms of HIV-1 as it enters the cell and uh, translocates into the uh, nucleus. That's some photography there, I guess. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's actually quite interesting. They were able to tag the uh, virus with a tetracysteine tag, uh-huh. which allows it then to be tagged with a fluorophore. And this allowed them then to track the viral particle as it first latches onto the cell, gets inside, right. uh, moves down the filaments, act down into the nucleus. And right. So it's quite exciting. And this kind of technology is actually going to be important for identifying mechanisms by which viruses begin their, the establishment of their infections. Yeah. Very fascinating stuff. People are certainly imaging all kinds of cool stuff nowadays. Pretty soon we can know how these diseases propagate through the cell system. Huh? Right. And certainly it'll give avenues for maybe attacking these type of viruses. Cool. So this is very fascinating work. It was published in a recent edition of Nature Methods. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, coming up next, Professor Lee Allen Dukotkin will join us to discuss altruism and evolution. So stay tuned.
and welcome back to the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, altruistic behavior is a phenomenon seen throughout the animal kingdom, where one animal may help another without seemingly receiving any immediate benefit. This has posed an interesting issue for evolutionary theorists, where survival of the fittest may seem incompatible with altruism. But the history of research into this problem has revealed that altruistic behavior can exist given the right environmental circumstances. Well, join us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss this issue is Professor Lee Allen Dukatkin. Professor Dukatkin is a professor and distinguished university scholar in the Department of Biology at the University of Louisville, whose research focuses on the evolution of social behavior. Author of numerous scientific and popular works on the subject, including two books, his most recent work, The Altruism Equation, Seven Scientists' Search for the Evolution of Goodness, looks at this issue of the evolution of altruistic behavior. Professor Dukakin, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks. It's my pleasure to be here. A lot of people are probably interested in this issue of uh, altruism and how it can exist within an evolutionary framework, but I'm curious, how do we actually go about defining altruism uh, scientifically? Well, that's a great question because there is some debate about this, and it differs slightly depending upon whether you talk to psychologists or biologists. But basically, in evolutionary biology, we define altruism specifically as an action that benefits others, but at a cost to the individual who's actually being altruistic. So you help others, and it's costly to you. That's what makes an act altruistic. So it obviously seems somewhat incompatible for an animal who's selfish uh, in self-interests. This has been the problem really since Darwin, that if you think about evolution as sort of traits that are favored are those that, that help individuals get their genes into the next generation, then helping others at a cost to yourself is exactly what you would not expect to see. And this was a problem that troubled Darwin in the origin of species. He, he discussed it at length, and it turns out that over the last hundred years or so, um, evolutionary biologists have come up with a number of possible routes for evolution for the evolution of altruism that aren't contrary to Darwin's basic ideas at all. And the one that I discuss uh, most in altruism equation is the notion that altruistic behavior is often directed towards blood kin. And that's especially important because blood kin are genetically similar to each other. And so you can get the evolution of altruism, because by helping your relatives, you're helping individuals who are genetically very similar to you. far, I guess, does this extend within kinship relationship? The, the nice thing about this theory is that it doesn't so much say that you should be altruistic towards your blood kin and not altruistic towards everybody else, but it rather says that the amount of altruism that you expect is sort of proportional to how related you are to individuals. So you expect more altruism between brothers and sisters and parents and their children because they're very related. But, for example, cousins are related to each other, and it turns out you can show that they're mathematically about a quarter as related as brothers are. So generally speaking, we expect some altruism among relatives like cousins, but not as much as among brothers. And it's not only the genetic relatedness that matters. It, it, it matters how costly it is to do this and how much you're helping the individual. So all three of those things play in, into the equation that helps us predict altruism. You know, how related you are, how costly is it for you to do this, and how great are the benefits that the individual you're helping gets. You mix those together and you get a picture of when you should get altruism. When did people first start trying to mathematically quantify this type of relationship? 
Yeah, it took quite a while before that happened. So basically, 1859, when Darwin published The Origin, was when this problem was first raised. In the 1930s, there were some really mathematically oriented biologists that addressed this question, but for some odd reason that we still don't know yet, they actually didn't address it mathematically, even though that's really what they did most of the time. It took until about the early 1960s when a fairly young Bill Hamilton, just out of his PhD, or actually during his PhD, developed the mathematical models that really are still in existence and being tested today. So 1963, 1964 was when the first models came out. How have people actually gone about trying to test this uh, mathematical model of Hamilton's? Well, what they do is, if you're looking at the work in non-humans, and there is thousands of these kinds of studies, what people basically do is they try and measure three things. They try and measure when they see action in nature that looks altruistic. They'll try and figure out, first of all, if the individuals involved are relatives, and if they are, then how related are they? And nowadays, that's much easier than it used to be because basically the um, DNA fingerprinting techniques that we hear about in court cases, those techniques work perfectly well in animals, and so we can assess genetic relatedness fairly easy now compared to the way it was even 10 or 15 years ago. And then what we also try to do is we try and see, well, how costly is the act? So, for example, in bees that you to defend the nest. The act of altruism is extraordinarily costly. It's as costly as it can be. It costs the life of the individual. Other altruistic acts aren't necessarily that dramatically costly. For example, you might share foods that you went out and hunted with somebody else. It's costly, but it's not giving up your life. And then we try and measure how much the individuals who are the recipients of altruism, how much do they really get helped? So I'll give you just a good example, a classic example of how people have used this model. And this was sort of one of the first big tests of the models that Hamilton developed, and it dealt with ground squirrels. So people had known for a while who studied ground squirrels that they do this behavior that on the surface seems fairly strange, and that is that some of the ground squirrels, when there's a danger, a predator flying above or coming at you from the ground, when that predator is sighted, some of the individuals actually stand up on their hind legs and they give this piercing alarm call. They scream at the top of their voice, and what happens is every other squirrel in the vicinity heads for cover. And that squirrel who gave the alarm call does too, but only after it's given the alarm call and it made itself the most obvious possible thing in the uh, sight of the predator. So it's a fairly costly thing to do. Mm. And it was sort of mystifying to people why, the, why any of these squirrels would do this. Paul Sherman, back in the 1970s, when he was studying the system, he realized that, in fact, it wasn't just any old squirrel that was giving the alarm calls. It was the females that were giving the alarm calls. Hmm. And then he asked himself, well, why is it that the females are giving the alarm calls? And it turns out that in squirrels, the males leave the area they were born in when they were fairly young, and they move out to other groups, and they mate within those groups. But females stay in the area they were born in for their whole lives. So what happens is when you look at any group, you're looking at males who are unrelated to each other and to individuals in the group, and you're looking at females who are highly related to each other, mm. sisters, mother, daughter, cousins, very related individuals. And so it looks like the reason that the females are giving the calls is that, in fact, what they're doing is they're helping lots and lots of their blood relatives. Males don't have those blood relatives in the, in the group, not nearly as many, and they don't give the calls. If you take a female just by happenstance, once in a while you find that females leave the group they're in and they move someplace else. Like the, the group, may have di everybody may have died of disease or something happens to the group and females just have to leave and go somewhere else. When you look at those females, 
they don't give alarm calls when they go into their new groups because they're not made up of blood relatives. And so it looks like kinship is really what's at the heart of that example. Hmm. I gather that there are many examples of this throughout nature. Has it been known whether or not these types of altruistic behaviors derive independently, or are they sort of sprung from some sort of common mechanism? Uh, it depends on the kind of comparison you're making. There's actually a very active area of research on, for example, altruism in chimps and in other great apes. And part of the reason is to, is to try and understand whether or not the roots of altruism that we see in humans can be found in our closest relatives, the chimps. So in that sense, if you look at close related species, chimps and humans, then the roots of it can be found probably in the more primitive species. On the other hand, this really, really has developed independently in many, many, many different places. So, for example, in my lab, we study cooperation and altruism in fish, and other people study it in birds, and other people study it even in reptiles. Like I said, people are studying it in chimps, and people are studying it in humans. And if you think about it at that level, they really are many, many independent repetitions of the, the birth and then the maintenance of altruism in the animal world. Does these kinds of studies also inform the evolution of other types of moralistic t behaviors? Yeah, I think so. I think part of the reason that people are so interested in altruism in general is that, in a sense, it's sort of what we mean by goodness and morality. And any time you study that, then you can't help but at the same time be doing work that has implications for studying non-goodness. Or I, I hesitate to use the word evil because that has so many connotations to it, but basically nastiness. So, for example, if you're studying who's being nice to who, well, you're also indirectly getting data on who isn't being nice to who and who's being nasty to who. And so this work has helped us develop both the models and some experimental work on the evolution of, of aggression and, in some cases, of extreme aggression. So, yeah, I I think it, it shed light on a number of related areas, dominance hierarchies, that sort of thing. A lot of it sprang interest in altruism. We are running slightly out of time, but I'm curious, how did you become interested in uh, this whole issue? My own research program has looked at this for about 20 years, and it's primarily because, I think initially because of the riddle of, well, how can we really explain this sort of behavior that seems so antithetical to our basic understanding of evolution? You know, the theory was out there, but at that point, the tests were, you know, people were still really trying to get a good handle on the details. And the other thing is, um, and this I go into a little bit in the new book, the people in the history of this subject are so fascinating. People like Darwin, people like Huxley, people like... Peter Kropotkin, these folks, they led really incredible lives where their science and their personal lives intertwined in really interesting ways. And so it just sort of drew me in, both in terms of the science and the story. Uh, well, it is certainly a fascinating book. The new book is Altruism Equation, Seven Scientists' Search for the Evolution of Goodness. And Professor DeKakin, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. My pleasure. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you. And you were just listening to Professor Lee Allen Dukatkin discussing the evolution of altruism. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up next is the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
All right, welcome back to the Berkeley Rocks Science Show. Well, we're back from the break, and our guest, Professor Lee Dukotkin, has graciously decided to stick around and play our game, the Grokatron 5000. The Grokatron 5000 is, of course, the supercomputer that we found at the back of Roswell in 1947. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic altruistic or selfish. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, altruistic or selfish? Professor Dukakin, are you ready to play a game, the Grokatron 5000? I'll give it a shot. Okay, here we go. Person number one, Paris Hilton. Not altruistic. Billions of dollars in her purse and not necessarily spending it in any way to help folks. <laughs> but I think maybe some people might be getting enjoyment out of her work. <laughs> well, that's true. A small subset of people may be getting enjoyment out of her, uh, but uh, not in the way I'm talking about. <laughs> okay. Number two, Steve Jobs. I would say leaning towards altruistic because a lot of the products that Apple launches, although they're interested in the bottom line, I think they really do serve a function that helps in society. And I think that they're willing to actually put some things out there that maybe they could invest their money better otherwise, but they actually think it's a good thing to have out and help people with the technological revolution. So I'll give Jobs a plus for altruism. (laughs) (laughs) All right, number three, uh, famed biologist Stephen Jay Gould. I would define Gould as altruistic. Most scientists, I think, tend towards being altruistic simply because if you ask them, if you look at what they could have done with their talents and what they did do, they probably chose a lot of their career, and I think this is true for Gould, really to help us understand the world around us. And so I know that might sound as if I'm giving scientists a big pass on on everything, but I think that Gould probably did what he was doing because he really did want to elucidate the world around us, and so I consider that altruistic. Okay, well, I'm certainly richer for his work. Uh, number four, boxer Mike Tyson. Yeah, I can't think of anybody who's less altruistic in my <laughs> opinion. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, biting people's ears off and uh, getting $10 million to do it, if I had to sort of think of a definition of what not being altruistic is, that would that would be it. Okay. <laughs> so don't tell him I said that. <laughs> well. Okay, and finally, number five, the President of the United States, George Bush. I know that this may not go over well with your listeners, but I'm going to give Bush a plus in the altruism category because regardless of what the effects of what he's doing are, I honestly think that he's doing it because he thinks it's in the interest of the country. And so I'm going to give him a plus there, but I certainly recognize that that is a debatable decision. Sure, he's, he's happy for the vote of confidence. <laughs> so Mike Tyson and Paris Hilton know the other three. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right, well, Professor Dukakis, I, I do want to thank you for for sticking around, playing our game, The Grokatron 5000, and, of course, talking about your book, The Altruism Equation. Thank you so much, Joe. It's a pleasure. All right, now it's Bubblegum's mother talking about photodiodes. That's right. you got to see the light, and if you see the light, you're going to change that into electrical current, buddy. And that's what a photodiode does, baby. Can you see the light? I'm Bow Wow Diggity Dog. What's the alpha principle? Don't know what it is, but if you do, grok's at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, <laughs> but you won't bow wow. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. <laughs> <laughs>